the 193rd semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. From the Conference Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the Sunday morning session of the 193rd semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with speakers selected from leaders of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We extend our love and greetings to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world by radio, television, the internet, or satellite transmission. We note the absence of President Russell M. Nelson and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who will view the conference from their homes. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg with Brian Mathias and Andrew Unsworth at the organ. The choir is joined by members of the church from Ecuador, Hong Kong, Japan, New Zealand, Philippines, Puerto Rico, South Africa, and South Korea. The choir opened this meeting with Sweet is the Work and will now favor us with Go Forth with Faith. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Sean Douglas of the Seventy.
Our kind, gracious, loving Heavenly Father, our hearts are filled with joy, gladness, and gratitude for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for sending Thy Son to provide us the way back to Thee, to live with Thee eternally in peace and happiness. We're grateful this day to be gathered in all parts of this world to receive Thy Word through Thy living apostles and prophets and revelators and chosen servants. We pray that our hearts will be opened, that our minds will be clear, that we may receive Thy Word. We're grateful for this beautiful choir, for the angelic voices we've heard, and the message of the Restoration. We pray that we might have the faith to go forward, that we may share this message with all those who await it. We love Thee. We pray a special blessing on our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, and Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. We pray for them that they might feel a, a blessing of health restored to them. Now we pray for that which we desire most of all, that Thy Spirit might be poured out abundantly upon us this day, that we might receive Thy word with gladness and faith. And we say these things humbly, in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. The choir will now favor us with I'm Trying to Be Like Jesus. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from President M. Russell Ballard, Acting President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by President Emily Bell Freeman, Young Woman General President, Elder Adilson Dipala Parella of the Seventy, and Elder Quinton L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve will then address us.
My brothers and sisters, I'm honored to be with you this morning. I pray that the Lord will bless me. I've, uh, <clears throat> my eyes aren't what they used to be. I went and saw the eye doctor and I said, I, I can't see the teleprompters. He said, well, your eyes are old and they're not going to change, so I'll do the best I can. I'd like to share with you some things that have been in my mind. I have seemed, seemed to have the prophet Joseph in my mind the last few, few months. I have even, <clears throat> when I've sat and contemplated his divine, and not divine, but his glorious responsibility in becoming the prophet of this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. I think how grateful we are as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, that Joseph Smith, a boy, who desired to know what he needed to do to have his sins forgiven and found the courage to go into a grove of trees near his home in Palmyra, New York, and there to kneel in prayer and by his own statement to pray out loud for the first time. On that occasion, as Joseph on his knees in the, what we call the sacred grove, the heavens opened. Two personages, brighter than the noonday sun, appeared before him. One spoke to him and said, Joseph, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And thus began the restoration of the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer, spoke to the boy Joseph and opened up this dispensation of time that we now live in. We sing the song, Praise to the Man Who Communed with Jehovah. Joseph Smith, we thank the Lord for Joseph Smith and for his courage to go into that grove of trees in 1820 near his home in Palmyra, New York. 
And I've been thinking about just all of the marvelous things, brothers and sisters, that we know, and all the things that we have, the understanding of the purpose of life, who we are. We know who God is. We know who the Savior is because we have Joseph who went into a grove of trees as a boy, seeking really the forgiveness for his sins. I think it's one of the most glorious and wonderful things that anybody in this world can know that our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have revealed themselves in this latter day and that Joseph has been raised up to restore the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. My beloved brothers and sisters, my testimony to you this morning is how abundantly blessed we are to know all that we know because we have Joseph Smith, the prophet of this last dispensation, dispensation of time. We have the Book of Mormon. What a marvelous, wonderful gift the Book of Mormon is to the membership of the Church. Another witness, another testament that Jesus is the Christ. We have it because Joseph was worthy to go get the plates, was inspired by heaven to translate them by the gift and power of God and to give it to the world another testament that Jesus is the Christ. Well, my message this morning is simple. It's deep and it's full of love. For the prophet Joseph Smith and for all of those, my brothers and sisters, who have and were willing to sustain him in his youth. I would like to pay tribute this morning to his mother. I've always thought how wonderful it was that Lucy Mack Smith, when Joseph came from that experience in the sacred grove and told his mother what had happened, that she believed him. I'm grateful for his father 
and his brothers and his sisters and his family that sustained him in this tremendous responsibility that the Lord placed upon him to become the prophet, to restore the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ once again upon the earth. So my testimony this morning is that I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. I also know that our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared and spoke to Joseph and prepared him to become the prophet to restore the fullness of the everlasting gospel once again upon the earth. I marvel, and I'm sure that many of you do too, at how blessed we are to know what we know about our purpose in life, why we are here, what we should be trying to do and accomplish in our daily lives. We're in the process of trying to prepare ourselves a day at a time to be a little better, be a little kinder, be a little more prepared for that day when it will surely come, when we shall pass back into the presence of our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's getting a little closer for me. I'll soon be 95. My children tell me they think I'm a lot older than that some days, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm doing <laughs> the best I can. But in 50 years, brothers and sisters, I've had the privilege to cover the world in my assignment as a general authority of the church. It's been a wonderful blessing. There's almost, I think, almost all the parts of the world I've, I've got pretty close to. I've met with members of the, of the church all over the world. Oh, how I love you. What a glorious experience that's been to look into your faces, be in your presence and feel your love that you have for the Lord and for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May our Heavenly Father watch over us now and bless all the proceedings of the conference. May we have the Spirit of the Lord well up in our hearts, and may our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, increase, and our commitment to serve Him and to strive to keep His commandments.
and try to be more like him be a result of our attending General Conference. So wherever you are in this world, may God bless you. May the Spirit of the Lord be with us. May we feel the power of heaven as we worship together in this session of conference. I leave you my witness and testimony that I know that Jesus is the Christ. He is our Savior, our Redeemer. He is our best friend in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was introduced to a trail in Israel by my good friend, Elon. It's called the Jesus Trail, he said, because it's the path from Nazareth to Capernaum that many believe Jesus walked. I decided right then and there I wanted to walk that trail, so I began planning a trip to Israel. Six weeks before the trip, I broke my ankle. My husband worried about the injury. My greatest concern was how I would walk the Jesus Trail one month later. I am stubborn by nature, so I didn't cancel the plane tickets. I remember meeting our Israeli guide that beautiful June morning. I hopped out of the van and then pulled out a set of crutches and a knee scooter. Maya, our guide, took one look at my cast and said, uh, I don't think you can walk this trail in that condition. Maybe not, I replied but there's nothing that prevents me from trying. She gave a slight nod and we began. I love her for that, for believing I could walk the trail broken. I navigated the steep path and the boulders for a time on my own. Then, moved by the sincerity of my commitment, Maya pulled out a thin rope, tied it to the handlebars of my scooter and began to pull. She pulled me up the hills, through lemon orchards, and along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. At the journey's end, I expressed gratitude for my sweet guide who had helped me accomplish something I could have never accomplished on my own. When the Lord called Enoch to journey through the land and testify of him, Enoch hesitated. He was just a lad, slow of speech. How could he walk that path in his condition? He was blinded by what was broken in him. The Lord's answer to what hindered him was simple and immediate. Walk with me. Like Enoch, we must remember that the one who was bruised and broken for us will allow mortality to do its work in us, but he doesn't ask us to face those challenges alone. No matter the heaviness of our story or the current course of our path, he will invite us to walk with him. Think of the young man in a spot of trouble who met the Lord in a wilderness place. Jacob had journeyed far from home. In the dark of night, he had a dream that not only contained a ladder, but also held significant covenant promises, including what I like to call the five-finger promise. On that night, the Lord stood beside Jacob, introduced himself as the God of Jacob's father, and then promised, I am with you. I will keep you safe. I will bring you home again. I will not leave you. 
I will keep my promise to you. Jacob had a choice to make. He could choose to live his life simply acquainted with the God of his father, or he could choose to live life in committed covenant relationship with him. Years later, Jacob testified of a life lived within the Lord's covenant promises. God answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Just as he did for Jacob, the Lord will answer each of us in our day of distress if we choose to tether our life with his. He has promised to walk with us in the way. We call this walking the covenant path, a path that begins with the covenant of baptism and leads to deeper covenants we make in the temple. Perhaps you hear those words and think of checkboxes. Maybe all you see is a path of requirements. A closer look reveals something more compelling. A covenant is not only about a contract, although that is important. It's about a relationship. President Russell M. Nelson taught the covenant path is all about our relationship with God. Consider a marriage covenant. The wedding date is important, but equally important is the relationship forged through the life lived together afterward. The same is true with a covenant relationship with God. Conditions have been set, and there will be expectations along the way. And yet, he invites each of us to come as we are able, with full purpose of heart, and to press forward with him at our side, trusting that his promised blessings will come. Scripture reminds us that often those blessings come in his own time and in his own way, 38 years. 12 years, immediately, as your trail will demand, so his succor will be. His is a mission of condescension. Jesus Christ will meet us where we are, as we are. This is the why of the garden, the cross, and the tomb. The Savior was sent to help us overcome, but staying where we are won't bring the deliverance we seek. Just as he didn't leave Jacob there in the dirt, the Lord doesn't intend to leave any of us where we are. His is also a mission of ascension. He will work within us to lift us up to where he is and, in the process, enable us to become as he is. Jesus Christ came to lift us. He wants to help us become. This is the why of the temple. We must remember, it's not the course alone that will exalt us, it's the companion, our Savior. And this is the why of covenant relationship. When I was in Israel, I visited the Western Wall. For the Jews, this is the most holy site in Israel. It is all that remains of their temple. Most wear their finest when they visit this sacred place. Their choice of garment is a symbol of their devotion to their relationship with God. They visit the wall to read scripture, to worship, and to pour out their prayers. The plea for a temple in their midst consumes their every day, their every prayer, this longing for a house of covenant. I admire their devotion. When I returned home from Israel, I listened more closely to the conversations around me regarding covenants. I noticed people asking, why should I walk a covenant path? Do I need to enter a house for making covenants? Why do I wear the holy garment? 
Should I invest in a covenant relationship with the Lord? The answer to these good and important questions is simple. It depends on what degree of relationship you want to experience with Jesus Christ. Each of us will have to discover our own response to those deeply personal questions. Here is mine. I walk this path as a beloved daughter of heavenly parents, divinely known and deeply trusted. As a child of the covenant, I am eligible to receive promised blessings. I have chosen to walk with the Lord. I have been called to stand as a witness of Christ. When the path feels overwhelming, I am strengthened with enabling grace. Each time I cross the threshold of his house, I experience deeper covenant relationship with him. I am sanctified with his spirit, endowed with his power, and set apart to build his kingdom. Through a process of daily repentance and weekly partaking of the sacrament, I am learning to become steadfast and to go about doing good. I walk this path with Jesus Christ, looking forward to the promised day when he will come again. Then I will be sealed his and lifted up as a holy daughter of God. This is why I walk the covenant path. This is why I cling to covenant promises. This is why I enter his covenant house. This is why I wear the holy garment as a constant reminder, because I want to live in committed covenant relationship with him. Perhaps you do too. Begin where you are. Don't let your condition hinder you. Remember, pace or pa placement on the path are not as important as progress. Ask someone you trust who is on the covenant path to introduce you to the Savior they have come to know. Learn more of him. Invest in the relationship by entering into covenant with him. It doesn't matter your age or your condition. You can walk with him. After we finished walking the Jesus Trail, Maya did not take back her rope. She left it tied to my scooter. For the next few days, my teenage nephews and their friend took turns pulling me through the streets of Jerusalem. They made sure I did not miss out on the stories of Jesus. I was reminded of the strength of the rising generation. We can learn from you. You have a genuine desire to know the guide, Jesus Christ. You trust the strength of the rope that tethers us to him. You are unusually gifted in gathering others to him. Thankfully, we walk this path together, calling out encouragement along the way. As we share our personal experience with Christ, we will strengthen personal devotion. Of this, I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. At uh, baptism, one of the promises that we make is that we are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. My purpose today is to remind us that we can show God that we take the name of His Son upon ourselves by bearing testimony in word and deed, and as often as we can, that Jesus is the Christ. When ministering to and teaching the people in the Americas after his resurrection, 
the Savior declared, Have they not read the scriptures which say ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. And whoso taketh upon him my name and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. President Russell M. Nelson has taught us that, quote, taking the Savior's name upon us includes declaring and witnessing to others through our actions and our words that Jesus is the Christ. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have the blessing and privilege to stand as witnesses of the Lord and His name everywhere we are. As we strive to live our lives in harmony with the gospel of Jesus Christ, our conduct will be a living testimony of our Redeemer and His name. Moreover, we witness of Christ in word by sharing with others what we believe, feel, or know of Jesus Christ. When we humbly share our testimony of the Lord through our words and actions, the Holy Ghost confirms to those with real intent, open hearts, and willing minds that Jesus is indeed the Christ. I would like to share two recent and inspiring examples of members who show God that they take the name of Jesus Christ upon themselves by talking of Him and bearing pure witness of the Lord in church meetings. First example, when my wife Elaine and I went to Spain in 2022, we attended Sunday meetings in a small unit of the church there. As I sat on the stand and my wife and the congregation, I noticed that she sat by an older woman. When the sacrament meeting ended, I walked towards Elaine and asked her to introduce me to her new friend. She did so and indicated that this woman, who was not a member of the church, had been visiting the church for about two years. When I heard that, I asked this God-fearing woman what made her come back and attend our meetings such, for such an extended period. The woman lovingly replied, I love to come here because you speak of Jesus Christ in your meetings. Clearly, members of the church in that unit in Spain talked, taught, and testified of Christ in their meetings. Second example, after serving in the Brazil area, a new assignment came to serve at church headquarters. When we moved to Salt Lake City at the end of July of this year, we attended Sunday meetings at our new and wonderful ward. One of these meetings was a fast and testimony meeting. After reverently partaking of the sacrament, members stood up and bore heartfelt testimonies of the Savior, one after the other. 
the meeting was centered on Jesus Christ, and we could palpably feel the Spirit. We were edified, and our faith was strengthened. If friends of the Church honestly seeking the truth had been at that meeting, they would have recognized that this is the Church of Jesus Christ. What a blessing to see that our church meetings are choice opportunities for us to testify of Christ and signal to God that we rejoice in taking His Son's name upon us. Now, let me mention a powerful example of taking the uh, name of Jesus Christ upon us by bearing testimony of Him through actions. Last August, I accompanied Elder Jonathan Schmidt to the open house of the Feather River California Temple in Yuba City. There, I had the blessing of guiding groups on a tour of the temple. One of these groups included a member of the church, Virgil Atkinson, and seven friends of other faiths. Towards the end of the visit, in a temple sitting room, Brother Atkinson was emotional as he expressed his love for his friends who had come to the temple that day. Almost immediately after he had done so, a woman in the group stood up and said, We all love Virgil. He has never imposed his faith on us, but he's not shy about it either. He just lives what he believes. Over the years, Brother Atkinson's Christ-like living served as a powerful testimony to his friends. His example is strong evidence that he has taken upon himself the name of Christ. In conclusion, let me share the lesson I learned about how to take upon us the name of Christ and testify of him by using the correct name of the Church. President Nelson, God's living prophet, in 2018, at that general conference address titled The Correct Name of the Church, said, It is a correction. It is the command of the Lord. Joseph Smith did not name the Church restored through him. Neither did Mormon. It was the Savior himself who said, For thus shall my Church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We all left General Conference that day committed and determined to follow the Prophet and to use the revealed name of the Church from then on. I really watched myself to make sure I used the correct name of the Church. The first few times I had to be very conscious of, and not allow myself to go back to the old ways. After the first attempts, I felt more comfortable about using the revealed name of the Church. I admit that many times I would speak the name of the Church quickly. I felt concerned that people would not pay attention to the church, Church's full name and that they might think it to be a bit long. However, I later recognized or realized that speaking the full name of the Church with intent gave me valuable opportunities to speak the name of Jesus Christ and, in fact, bear testimony of the Savior by declaring His name in the name of His Church. I also noticed that when I spoke the correct name of the Church with others, I more frequently remembered Jesus Christ and felt His influence in my life. 
By following the Prophet, we can all learn to testify more of Jesus Christ by using the correct name of the Church. Thus, taking upon us more fully the name of the Lord. Now this Sabbath morning, I gladly testify that President Nelson is God's living prophet and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is Christ's restored Church. I humbly witness of the Son of God and His divinity. He is God's firstborn and only begotten Son, our Savior and Redeemer, the Emmanuel, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I feel privileged to have had the blessing of hearing my quorum president, M. Russell Ballard, bear his uh, precious testimony. He's been a general authority longer than anybody else that has been, that has lived uh, in this, at this time. We live in a time when peaceable followers of Christ experience unique challenges. Those who believe in, humbly worship, and testify of Jesus Christ have always experienced trials, tribulation, and adversities. My wife Mary and I are no different. In the last few years, we have seen many of our close high school friends, missionary companions, some of their precious wives, and former work associates pass away. Or, as President Russell M. Nelson has said, graduate to the other side of the veil. We have seen some who were raised in faith and belief step off the covenant path. Sadly, we lost a grandson of 23 who died in a tragic single-car accident. Some dear friends, family members, and colleagues have also endured significant health challenges. Whenever trials occur, we mourn and strive to bear one another's burdens. We lament the things that will not be accomplished and the songs that will not be sung. Bad things happen to good people on this mortal journey. The devastating fires on Maui and Hawaii, southern Chile and Canada are examples of horrendous events good people sometimes face. We read in The Pearl of Great Price that the Lord revealed to Abraham the eternal nature of spirits. Abraham learned of our pre-earth life, foreordination, the creation, the choosing of a Redeemer, and this mortal life, which is the second estate of man. The Redeemer declared, We will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Now all of us are here in the second estate of our journey of progression toward a kingdom of glory as part of God's great plan of salvation and exaltation. We are blessed with agency and subject to the trials of mortality. This is the time allotted for us to prepare to meet God. We are blessed to know of Jesus Christ and His role in the plan. We have the privilege to become members of His restored Church 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As peaceable followers of Christ, we strive to live His commandments. It has never been easy for His followers, nor was it easy for the Savior to faithfully fulfill His mortal mission. The scriptures are clear. Many will succumb to an eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die approach. Other non-believers retreat to somber enclaves of like-minded participants who advocate for the next new thing and philosophies of men. They know not where to find the truth. Peaceable followers of Christ do not follow either path. We are warm, engaged members of the communities where we live. We love, share, and invite all of God's children to follow Christ's teachings. We follow the counsel of our beloved prophet, President Nelson. We choose the role of a peacemaker now and always. This inspired approach is consistent with both the scriptures and prophetic direction. In 1829, the Restored Church had not yet been organized, nor had the Book of Mormon been published. A small group of struggling people, moved by the Spirit of God, followed the prophet Joseph Smith. The Lord revealed to Joseph counsel for difficult times. Fear not, little flock. Do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. He also counseled them, Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, our heavenly destiny is not altered when we suffer adversity. In Hebrews, we are counseled to come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. I love the words of Mormon quoted by his son Moroni, commending the peaceable followers of Christ because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. For those of us in the Church striving to be peaceable followers of Christ, a brighter day awaits us as we focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Trials are a part of mortality and occur in everyone's life throughout the world. This includes major conflicts between countries and individuals. Church leaders are fre frequently asked, why does a just God allow bad things to happen, especially to good people? And why are those who are righteous and in the Lord's service not immune from such tragedies? We do not know all the answers. However, we do know important principles that allow us to face trials, tribulation, and adversities with faith and confidence in a bright future that awaits for each of us. No better example exists in Scripture with respect to passing through tribulation than the word of the Lord to Joseph Smith, the prophet, while he was a prisoner in Liberty Jail. The Lord in part declared, If the very jaws of hell shall gape open, the mouth wide after thee, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? 
Fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever." End quote. It is clear we have a Father in heaven who knows and loves us personally and understands our suffering perfectly. His, Je His Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior and Redeemer. President Russell M. Nelson and President M. Russell Ballard have both strongly emphasized the significance of the new second edition of Preach My Gospel. I share their enthusiasm. This new edition, amplifying sacred scripture, powerfully proclaims, quote, in his atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ took upon himself our pains, afflictions, and infirmities. Because of this, he knows according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He invites, come unto me, and as we do, he gives us rest, hope, strength, perspective, and healing. As we rely on Jesus Christ and his atonement, he can help us endure our trials, sicknesses, and pain. We can be filled with joy, peace, and consolation. All that is unfair about life can be made right through the atonement of Jesus Christ." End quote. We can joyfully be peaceable followers of Christ. Our Father's plan of happiness for his children includes not only a premortal and mortal life, but also a potential for eternal life, including a great and glorious reunion with those we have lost. All wrongs will be righted, and we will see with perfect clarity and faultless perspective and understanding. Church leaders have compared this perspective with someone walking into the middle of a three-act play. Those without knowledge of the Father's plan do not understand what happened in the first act or the premortal existence and the purposes established there. Nor do they understand the clarification and resolution that comes in the third act, which is the glorious fulfillment of the Father's plan. Many do not appreciate that are His loving and comprehensive plan, those who appear to be disadvantaged through no fault of their own are not ultimately impacted. The scriptures are clear. Peaceable followers of Christ who are righteous follow the Savior and keep His commandments will be blessed. One of the most important scriptures for those who are righteous, regardless of their situation in life, is part of King Benjamin's address to his people. He promises that those who faithfully keep the commandments are blessed in all things in this life and are received into heaven and dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. We recognize that almost all of us have experienced physical and spiritual storms in our lives, some devastating, a loving Father in heaven and His Son Jesus Christ, who is the head of His restored Church have provided us scriptures and prophets to prepare us, warn us about dangers, and give us guidance to prepare and protect us. Some directions require immediate action. Some provide protection for many years in the future. The Lord's Preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 1, admonishes us to give heed to the words of the prophets. Section 1 also cautions us, prepare ye, Prepare ye for that which is to come. 
The Lord provides His people a chance to prepare for the challenges they will face. The Lord gave a powerful revelation to President Brigham Young on January 14, 1847, at Winter Quarters. This revelation is a classic example of the Lord preparing people for that which is to come. The faithful saints had begun their exodus to the mountain sanctuary of the Salt Lake Valley. They had successfully built the Nauvoo Temple and received sacred saving ordinances. They had been driven out of Missouri, and their persecutors had driven them out of Nauvoo in a terrible winter season. The revelation to Brigham gave practical counsel on how to prepare for the Exodus. The Lord placed special emphasis on taking care of the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the families of those serving in the Mormon battalion as the main body of saints proceeded on their perilous journey. In addition to other advice to live righteously, the Lord emphasized two other principles that continue to be applicable today. First, He encouraged them to praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Second, the Lord counseled, If they were sorrowful, call on the Lord thy God with supplication, that your souls may be joyful. These two admonitions are great counsel for our own day. Lives full of praise, music, and thanksgiving are uniquely blessed. Being joyful and relying on heavenly help through prayer is a powerful way to be peaceable followers of Christ. Striving always to be of good cheer helps avoid being cast down in spirit. The final line of a perceptive hymn conveys the ultimate answer in a beautiful fashion. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I testify that peaceable followers of Christ will find personal peace in this life and a glorious heavenly reunion. I bear a sure witness of the Savior's divinity and the reality of His Atonement. He is our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When directed to do so, the congregation will join the choir in singing, Come Ye Children of the Lord. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Bishop W. Christopher Waddell, who serves as First Counselor in the presiding bishopric. This is the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
Isn't it wonderful to sing with the choir in such a joyful song? We are together with the Tabernacle Choir. My wife and I are always looking forward to that. President Ballard, we love you. You don't have 2020 eyesight anymore, but you have 2020 spiritual vision. It has been called by some the greatest short story ever told, translated into thousands of languages across the world. It is quite possible that during the past two millennia, the sun has not set without this story being referenced somewhere in the world. It was told by Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, who came to earth to save that which was lost. He begins with these simple words, a certain man had two sons. Immediately we learn of a heartbreaking conflict. One son tells his father he is through his life at home. He wants his freedom. He wants to leave behind the culture and teachings of his parents. He asks for his share of the inheritance now. Can you imagine what the father felt when he heard this? When he realized that what his son wanted more than anything else was to leave the family and perhaps never return. The son must have felt a thrill of adventure and excitement. As long last, he was on his own, free from the principles and rules of the culture of his youth. He could finally make his own choices without being influenced by his parents. No more guilt. He could bask in the acceptance of a like-minded community and life and live life on his own terms. Arriving in a faraway country, he quickly made new friends and began living the life he had always dreamed of. He must have been a favorite of many, for he spent money freely. His new friends, beneficiaries of his prodigality, did not judge him. They celebrated, applauded, and championed his choices. Had there been social media in that time, surely he would have filled pages with animated photos of laughing friends, hashtag living my best life, or hashtag never happier, or hashtag should have done this long ago. But the party did not last. It rarely does. Two things happened. First, he ran out of money. And second, a famine swept through the land. As the problems worsened, he panicked. The once unstoppable, jubilant, high roller now could not afford a single meal, let alone a place to stay. How would he survive? He had been generous to his friends. Would they help him now? I can see him asking for a little support just for now until he got back on his feet. The scriptures tell us, no man give unto him. Desperate to remain alive, he found a local farmer who hired him to feed swine. Extremely hungry now, 
abandoned and alone. The young man must have wondered how things could have gone so terribly, dreadfully wrong. It wasn't just an empty stomach that troubled him. It was an empty soul. He had been so sure that giving in to his worldly desires would make him happy, that moral laws were obstacles to that happiness. Now he knew better. Oh, and how, what a price he had to pay for that knowledge. As the physical and spiritual hunger grew, his thoughts returned to his father. Would he help him after all that had happened? Even the humblest of his father's servants had food to eat and shelter from the storms. But return to his father? Never. Confess to his village that he had squandered his inheritance? Impossible. Face the neighbors who surely had warned him that he was disgracing his family and breaking his parents' hearts. Now, return to his old friends after boasting of how he was breaking free? Unbearable. But the hunger, loneliness, and remorse simply wouldn't go away until he came to himself. He knew what he needed to do. Now, let us go back to the father, uh, the broken-hearted master of the house. How many hundreds, perhaps thousands of hours had he spent worrying about his son? How many times had he looked down the very road his son had taken and relived the penetrating loss he had felt as his son walked away? How many prayers had he offered in the gospel and the deep night? pleading with God that his son would be safe, that he would discover truth, that he would return. And then one day, the father looked out on the lonely road, the road that leads home, and sees a distant figure walking towards him. Is it possible? Though the individual is a great way off, the father knows in an instant it is his son. He runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Father, the son cries out in words he must have rehearsed a thousand times. I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. All I ask is that you take me in as a hired servant. But the father scarcely lets him finish. Tears in his eyes, he commands his servants, bring the finest robe in the house and place it on my son's shoulders. Put a ring on his shoulder and sandals on his feet. Make a feast to celebrate. My son has returned. In my office hangs a painting of the German artist Richard Burde. Harriet and I love this painting. It depicts one tender scene from the Savior's parable in a deeper perspective. While everyone is overjoyed at the son's return, one is not his older brother. 
He is carrying some emotional baggage. He had been there when his brother demanded his inheritance. He had witnessed firsthand the massive weight of grief on his father. Ever since his brother had left, he had tried to lift his father's burden. Every day he had worked to restore his father's broken heart. And now, the reckless child is back. And people couldn't stop lavishing attention on his rebellious brother. All these years, he tells his father, never once have I refused to do a single thing you asked, yet in all the time, you never celebrated me. The loving father responds, my dear son, all that I have is yours. This is not about comparing rewards or celebrations. This is about healing. This is the moment we have been hoping for all these years. Your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. My dear beloved brothers and sisters, my dear friends, like all of the Savior's parables, this one is not just about people living long ago. It's about you and me today. Who among us has now departed from the path of holiness, foolishly thinking we could find more happiness going our own self-centered way? Who among us has not felt humbled, brokenhearted, and desperate for forgiveness and mercy? Perhaps some may even have wondered, it is, is it even possible to go back? Will I be labeled forever, rejected, and avoided by my former friends? Is it better to just stay lost? How will God react if I try to return? This parable gives us the answer. Our Heavenly Father will run to us, his heart overflowing with love and compassion. He will embrace us, place a robe around our shoulders, a ring on our fingers, sandals on our feet, and proclaim, Today we celebrate for my child, who once was dead, has come back to life. Brothers and sisters, heaven will rejoice at our return. May I take a moment now and speak to you individually. No matter what may have happened in your life, I echo and proclaim the words of my beloved friend and fellow apostle, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Quote, it is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atoning sacrifice shines." End of quote. Though choices may have taken you far away from the Savior and his church, the master healer stands at the road that leads home, welcoming you. And we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, seek to follow his example and embrace you as our brothers and sisters, as your friends, we rejoice and celebrate with you. Your return will not diminish the blessings of others, for the Father's bounty is infinite, 
and what is given to one does not in the slightest diminish the birthright of others. I do not pretend that coming back is an easy thing to do. I can testify of that. It may, in fact, be the toughest choice you will ever make. But I bear witness that the moment you decide to return and walk in the way of our Savior and Redeemer, His power will enter your life and transform it. Angels in heaven will rejoice, and so will we, your family in Christ. After all, we know what it's like to be a prodigal. We all rely daily on the same atoning power of Christ. We know this path, and we will walk with you. No, our path will not be free from grief, sorrow, or sadness, but we came this far by the word of Christ with unshaken faith in Him, relying wholly on the merits of Him who is mighty to save. And together, we will press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and the love of God and of all people. Together, we will rejoice with you and rejoice in unspeakable joy and full of glory. For Jesus Christ is our strength. It is my prayer that each one of us may hear in this profound parable the Father's voice calling us to enter the road that leads home, that we may have the courage to repent, receive forgiveness, and follow the path that leads back to our compassionate and merciful God. Of this I bear witness and leave you my blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. From 1856 to 1860, thousands of Latter-day Saint pioneers pulled their belongings in handcarts for over 1,000 miles as they traveled to the Salt Lake Valley. 167 years ago this very week, on October 4, 1856, President Brigham Young was surprised to learn that two handcart companies, led by Edward Martin and James Willie, were still hundreds of miles from Salt Lake, with winter fast approaching. The very next day, not far from where we meet today, President Young stood before the saints and declared, many of our brethren and sisters are on the plains with handcarts, and they must be brought here. Go and bring in those people now on the plains. Just two days later, the first rescue parties departed in search of the handcart pioneers. A member of the Willie Company described the desperate situation prior to the arrival of the main rescue team. He shared, just when it seemed all would be lost and there seemed little left to live for, like a thunderbolt out of the clear sky, God answered our prayers. A rescue party bringing food and supplies came into sight. How we thanked God for our rescue. These rescuers were heroes to the pioneers, putting their own lives at risk in extreme weather conditions to bring as many as possible safely home. One such hero was Ephraim Hanks. In mid-October, 
and unaware of the handcart predicament, Hanks was returning to his home in Salt Lake following a trip when during the night he was awakened by a voice, a voice that said to him, the handcart people are in trouble and you are wanted. Will you go and help them? With that question ringing in his mind, he hurried back to Salt Lake City. And upon hearing President Heber C. Kimball call for additional volunteers, Hank set out the very next day on his own to the rescue. Moving quickly, he overtook other rescuers en route, and upon reaching the Martin Company, Hanks recalled, The sight that met my gaze as I entered their camp can never be erased from my memory and was enough to touch the stoutest heart. Ephraim Hanks spent days moving from tent to tent, blessing the sick. He related that, in scores of instances, when we administered to the sick and rebuked the diseases in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sufferers would rally at once. They were healed almost instantly. Ephraim Hanks will forever be a hero to those handcart pioneers. Similar to that remarkable rescue, events which impact our lives and even the course of history are frequently the result of decisions and achievements of individual men and women, great artists, scientists, business leaders, and even politicians. These extraordinary individuals are often honored as heroes, with monuments and memorials built to commemorate their exploits. When I was a young boy, my first heroes were athletes. My earliest memories are collecting baseball cards with the pictures and statistics of Major League Baseball players. Hero worship as a child can be fun and even innocent, such as children dressing up as their favorite superheroes for Halloween. Although we admire and respect many talented and remarkable men and women for their abilities and contributions, the degree to which they are revered, if taken to an excess, can be the equivalent of the children of Israel worshiping a golden calf in the desert of Sinai. As adults, what was once innocent childhood fun can become a stumbling block when hero worship of politicians, bloggers, influencers, athletes, or musicians causes us to look beyond the mark and lose sight of what is truly essential. For the children of Israel, the challenge was not the gold that they brought with them on their journey to the Promised Land, but rather what they allowed the gold to become, an idol, which then became the object of their worship, turning their attention away from Jehovah, who had parted the Red Sea and delivered them from bondage. Their focus on the calf impacted their ability to worship the true God. The hero, our hero, now and always, is Jesus Christ. And anything or anyone that distracts us from his teachings as found in the scriptures and through the words of living prophets can negatively impact our progress on the covenant path. Before the creation of this world, we looked to Jesus Christ when it became clear that the plan proposed by Father in heaven, which included our opportunity to progress and become like him, was being challenged. Not only was Jesus Christ the leader in defending our Father's plan, but he would also play the most crucial role in its implementation. He responded to the Father and volunteered to offer himself a ransom for all, to pay a debt that each of us would incur through sin but could not pay on our own. President Dallin H. Oaks has taught, Jesus Christ has done everything that is essential for our journey through mortality toward the destiny outlined in the plan of our Heavenly Father. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. When faced with such an overwhelming task, the Savior bravely stated, Not my will, but thine be done, and proceeded to take upon himself the combined pains, the sicknesses, and the suffering for the sins of all who would ever live. In a perfect act of obedience and commitment, Jesus Christ completed the supreme heroic act in all of creation, culminating in his glorious resurrection. In our most recent General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson reminded us, whatever questions or problems you have, the answer is always found in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Learn more about his atonement, his love, his mercy, his doctrine, and his restored gospel of healing and progression. Turn to him, follow him, and I would add, choose him. In our complex world, it can be tempting to turn to society's heroes in an effort to provide clarity to life when it may seem confusing or even overwhelming. We buy the clothes they sponsor, we embrace the politics they espouse, and we follow their suggestions as shared on social media. This might be fine for a temporary diversion, but we must be watchful that this form of hero worship does not become our golden calf. Choosing the right hero has eternal consequences. When our family arrived in Spain to begin our service as mission leaders, we found a framed quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell that has relevance to the heroes we choose to follow. He stated, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. Brothers and sisters, it is by choosing Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, that we choose the kingdom of God. Any other choice is the equivalent of choosing the arm of flesh or a golden calf and will ultimately fail us. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, we read the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who clearly know which hero to choose, and it was not any of the gods of King Nebuchadnezzar. They confidently declared, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image. As the Apostle Paul has taught, there be gods many, and I may add heroes many, to whom we are invited to bow down, to worship, and to embrace. But just as Daniel's three friends knew, there was only one that is guaranteed to deliver, because he already has, and he always will. For us, on our journey back to the presence of God, to our promised land, it's not the politician, it's not the musician, the athlete, or the vlogger that is the issue but rather choosing to allow them to become the primary objects of our attention and focus in place of our Savior and Redeemer. We choose Him, Jesus Christ, when we choose to honor His day, whether we're at home or traveling on vacation. We choose Him when we choose His words through the scriptures and the teachings of the living prophets. We choose Him when we choose to hold the temple recommend and live worthy of its use. We choose Him when we are peacemakers and refuse to be contentious, especially when we have differences of opinion. No leader has ever shown more courage, no humanitarian more kindness, no physician has cured more disease, and no artist has been more creative than Jesus Christ. In a world of heroes, with monuments and museums devoted to the exploits of mortal men, 
and women, there is one who stands above all others. I testify that Jesus Christ is not only our hero, he is our Lord, our King, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are grateful to those who have spoken and to the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. The choir will now favor us with Hark All Ye Nations. Following the singing, our concluding speaker for this session will be President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency. Following his remarks, the choir will sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Patricio M. Giuffre of the Seventy.
my beloved brothers and sisters. In this conference, we have been blessed with an outpouring of revelation. Servants of the Lord, Jesus Christ, have spoken and will speak words of truth, encouragement, and direction. I have been touched by the testimonies born in this conference that the Lord speaks to us personally through the Holy Ghost. As we pray and then heed the Spirit's promptings, we gain greater insights and blessings to guide us through the increasingly difficult days ahead. We have heard again President Russell M. Nelson's warning that in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. That prophetic warning has led me to ponder what I might teach my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren about how to have that crucial guidance in the difficult days ahead for them. So this message today is a brief letter to my descendants that might help them when I am not with them in the exciting days ahead. I want them to know what I have come to know that could help them. I have come to better understand what it will take for them to have the constant influence of the Holy Ghost in the days in which they will live. And I have felt impressed to speak today of my personal experience of inviting the Holy Ghost as nearly as I could to be my, to be my constant companion. My prayer is that I may be able to encourage them. I would start them to think about and pray about Helaman's sons, Nephi and Lehi, and the other servants of the Lord laboring with them. They faced fierce opposition. They were serving in, in a wicked place and had to deal with terrible deceptions. I take courage, and you could, from this one verse from the record of Helaman. Open quote. And in the seventy and ninth year, 
there began to be much strife. But it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi and many of their brethren who knew concerning the true points of doctrine, having many revelations daily. Therefore, they did preach unto the people, insomuch that they did put an end to their strife in that same year. This account encourages me, and it could encourage you. Helaman's sons were taught and guided by a series of experiences with the Holy Ghost. This assures me that we can be taught and learn from the Spirit, line upon line, receiving what we need, and then when we are ready, we will receive more. I have been encouraged in the same way by the account of Nephi being asked to go back to Jerusalem for the plates of Laban. You remember the choice he made? He said, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. Nephi's experience with the Holy Ghost on that errand has given me courage many times. When I have embarked on tasks I knew were assignments from the Lord, but which seemed far beyond my past experience and beyond what I saw as my capacity. You remember what Nephi said about his experience. And it was by night, and I caused that my brothers should hide themselves without the walls. And after they had hid themselves, I, Nephi, crept into the city and went forth towards the house of Laban. He goes on to say, And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. I have been encouraged by knowing that Nephi was guided by the Spirit minute by minute through the night on the Lord's errand. We need, and you will need, the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. Now, we desire it, yet we know from experience that it is not easy to achieve. We each think and say and do things in our daily lives that can offend the Spirit. When that happens, as it will, we may feel disapproval from the Lord, and we may be tempted to feel we are alone. It is important to remember the sure promise we receive each week 
as we repent and partake of the sacrament, that we may always have his spirit to be with them. If you have felt the influence of the Holy Ghost today, you may take it as a sweet evidence that the Atonement is working in your life. As Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has said, whenever these moments of our extremity come, we must not succumb to the fear that God has abandoned us or that he does not hear our prayers. He does hear us. He does see us. He does love us. That assurance has helped me when I feel distant from the Lord, when answers to my prayers seem delayed. I have learned to follow the counsel of President Nelson to review my life for opportunities to repent. He reminds us, daily repentance is the pathway to purity, and purity brings power. If you find yourself having difficulty in feeling the Holy Ghost, you might ponder whether there is anything for which you might repent and receive forgiveness. You can pray with faith to know what to do to be cleansed and thus more nearly qualify for that constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. If you want to receive the companionship of the Holy Ghost, you must want it for the right reasons. Your purposes must be the Lord's purposes. If your motives are too selfish, you will find it difficult to receive and sense the promptings of the Spirit. The key for me and for you is to want what the Savior wants. Our motives need to be driven by the pure love of Christ. Our prayers need to be, all I want is what you want. Thy will be done. I try to remember the Savior's sacrifice and his love for me. Then when I pray to Heavenly Father to give thanks, I feel love and assurance that my prayers are heard and that I will receive whatever is best for me and those I love. That strengthens my testimony. Of all things to which the Holy Ghost testifies, the most precious for us is that Jesus is the Christ, the living Son of God. The Savior promised, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, 
even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father. Years ago, I received a phone call from a distraught mother. She told me that her daughter had moved far from home. She sensed from the little contact she had with her daughter that something was terribly wrong. She pleaded with me to help. I found out who the daughter's home teacher was. You can tell by that name, it was a long time ago. I called him. He was young, yet he told me that he and his companion both had been awakened in the night with not only concern for the daughter, but with inspiration that she was about to make choices that would bring sadness and misery. With only that inspiration of the Spirit, they went to see her. At first, she did not want to tell them about her situation. Under inspiration, they pleaded with her to repent and choose the path the Lord had for her. She realized then, I believe by the Spirit, that the only way they could have known what they knew about her life was from God. A mother turned her loving concerns over to Heavenly Father and the Savior. The Holy Ghost had been sent to those home teachers because they were willing to serve the Lord. They had followed the counsel and promise found in the Doctrine and Covenants. Open quote. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith. And let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. I testify that the Lord has kept his promise. The Holy Ghost is being sent to the faithful, covenant members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now your experiences will be unique, and the Spirit will guide in the way best suited to your faith and capacity to receive revelation for you and for those you love and serve. I pray with all my heart that your confidence will grow. I bear my witness 
that God the Father lives. He loves you. He hears your every prayer. Jesus Christ did pray to the Father to send the Holy Ghost to guide, comfort, and testify of truth to us. The Father and His beloved Son appeared to Joseph Smith in a grove of trees. The prophet Joseph translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. Heavenly messengers restored priesthood geese. President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet of God for all the earth. As a witness of Jesus Christ, I know that he lives and he leads his church. You and I have the opportunity to have the Holy Ghost as our constant companion and to have those truths confirmed as we remember and love the Savior, repent and ask for his love to be in our hearts. I pray that we may have that blessing and the companionship of the Holy Spirit this day and every day of our lives. I love you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Our Heavenly Father, in this special morning, we thank thee for thy love and for all thy instructions that we receive from thy prophets, seers, and revelators, and thy faithful servants. We thank thee for President Nelson, and we ask thee to bless him with health and strength, and also for our dear brother, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, so he can also be well and have health and strength. We ask thee, this, especially this morning, to bless thy children around the world, all those who are searching for truth and find, trying to find the path that will lead them to thee. And we also pray for thy missionaries around the world, that they have the courage, they will be worthy to continue preaching thy gospel, that they will find every single soul that is willing to listen to thy gospel and want to know about thy Savior, Jesus Christ, and his divine atonement. We ask thee to bless them so they always remember who they are and who they represent. Bless those ones that are in need and afflicted, and help us to take in our hearts all the teachings and instructions that we receive today so we can emulate thy servant's example and be and do better. And humbly we ask for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from leaders of the church. 
Music for this session was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.